0: Hi, my name is Paul Crandall and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment. Whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc at That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life changing message. So. Please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. I want to jump just right in as we are diving into this series called Shocking Savior, as we're looking at how Jesus had the most impact of any human being in history. Now, we believe he had that impact because he wasn't just a human, but he was God in human life flesh, and what we're looking at is the shocking statements of Jesus and the shocking deeds of Jesus that have really cemented him in human history. You can't erase him. For some reason, this man who only had three years of ministry, who really came from poverty, who never wrote a book, who never led an army or held a political office, has really been the most impactful person in human history, and we're saying the reason he was able to have that impact and still has that impact is because he did some shocking and said some shocking things. And we're going to unpack that. But as we get to that idea and get to that topic, I want to just jump right in by asking you, asking you a question. I want to ask you this question. Have you ever been in a position where you were begging for healing? Just, just begging God to step in? All right, maybe it's been like at the bedside of a loved one who's dying and, and, and as you're there, you're just, you, you, maybe they're not even conscious, right? And you're just, you're, you're just praying, God, heal. God, show up. God, restore life, right? Or, or maybe even for yourself, maybe you've gotten a diagnosis, right? The doctor has delivered some really bad news and the forecast does not look good. And you, you find yourself just like, God, will you show up? God, will you heal? Right? Or maybe even it's that in-between time when you you get the test, the biopsy, right, and you're waiting for the lab to get back to you, and there's just this, this fear in the waiting, right? That anxiousness of not knowing what's gonna happen. Right? Have you ever found yourself just begging God to step in and to heal? I know I had a moment like this um, not that long ago, I think it was either 2018 or 2019. Uh we, we all got sick kind of as a family uh, during the Christmas season. And, and we were living in Southern California. We went up to Northern California and everybody got sick. Merry Christmas, right? It's the winter, it's flu season. So we all got sick and we were kind of used to it. You're just used to getting the sniffles during the Christmas season. And it, it kind of went around to everybody. Some people had knocked them down for a day or maybe half a day or something like that. But my father-in-law just did not seem to get better. John just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And everybody else was kind of feeling good, and and John just could not get better for some reason. And then his health just took this, like, dramatic downturn. He had to go into the hospital. They had to put him on a ventilator. And it was, I mean, it was just shocking how sharp the turn was. And so my wife and I had a conversation, and we decided what was best is for her to stay up north, or I guess now it's down south, but to stay in northern California. And I was going to take, at that point, the three kids, now we have four, but the three kids down south. They had to go back to school, and we thought it would be better for them to be down south. And so I I drove everybody down south, and I had only been home for maybe a couple of days, uh, maybe even not a day, and I get a call from my wife and she says, man, things have gotten even worse. Uh, the doctors have done this procedure. They say it's the only thing they can do. There's, there's no other options. There's nothing else left. Uh, they were going to do this emergency procedure, but then it was like it, it couldn't work. And so they had only one more thing that they can do. And they said, we're going to try this one thing, and we'll know within this two-hour window if it works or not. But this two-hour window is literally a, a life-and-death moment. And so my wife calls me at the beginning of that kind of two-hour span, and she says, babe, you're not going to believe what's happened. Here's what they've done. They've done this procedure. We'll know within two hours if it works, if he's still alive. And we were just shocked at the downturn that had happened for, for my father-in-law's health. And so I just threw the kids in the car. We still had luggage that I brought down that still had all of like our dirty clothes, and when I just threw them all in there. I figured I'll wash them when I get up there, and we'll have plenty of clothes. So I drove up there, and I'm driving I-5 obeying the speed limit, right? It's church, right? We can confess, yeah, yeah, right, okay? But I get there, and I get there really early in the morning. Now, John had made it through the night, so the procedure did work, but really what it did is it just delayed death another day because he wasn't that much better. There was so much damage that his body had experienced that that recovery was not really... was not really... Not even close to being guaranteed, but it was a very bleak kind of outlook. Um, And so I remember getting there, and I I think it was like four o'clock or something like that, really early in the morning. And all I wanted to do was go to the hospital, go to the ICU unit, and I watched, I just wanted to pray for him. That's the only thing I could think of. And my my wife and my mother-in-law said, "Paul, no, it's better that you get some rest. Uh, John needs rest too." So we, I, I took a nap and rested for maybe a couple hours, and we went to the hospital and it didn't take long i got into the icu room and you could just you could just feel like the despair of the diagnosis you could feel this collective anxiety that was just saturating the room and i remember going to his bedside and i grabbed his hand that was so swollen i was surprised i was shocked and i just got down on my knees and i just prayed god you got to show up like you got to heal him right? And I was just brokenhearted. And, and, and over the next several weeks, there were so many twists and turns in this entire journey. Um, one thing would get better, and then this would get worse, and then something we didn't even think about would be wrong, and all these things would happen. Now, John made uh, a recovery, and, and uh, it's remarkable the recovery he has made. One of the nurses that I talked to as John was leaving the ICU, she said, this is a miracle, right? And I truly believe that God intervened in that moment to heal John's Body. That's what I believe. That's how I see that situation. But what I want to kind of get in our minds is just how all-consuming that hunger is for healing at times. I mean, I, I, it's like everything in life was different. The, the experience of driving my car, of even eating food, like food tastes different, things smelled different. Everything was different because the only thing that I wanted is for my father-in-law to be healed. I mean, it just took over kind of every day. It was the, the thought in your mind every day because in that season, there was no bigger need than for healing. And I'm sure you've had a similar moment where you've had that all-consuming thought, God show up, God step in, God you got to heal, right? And we feel the weight of that need. Jesus Christ came on the scene and he performed healings. He met those Deep needs. But Jesus did something even more than that. Because there is a need greater than the need for healing. And Jesus met that need. See, history has had healers. And history has forgotten those healers. But Jesus Christ has been cemented in human history, not just because he could heal, but because he could do something else. Something something more needed than Healing. I need more desperate than healing. I need more costly to meet than healing. And that need is the forgiveness of our sin. That is the weightier thing. And Jesus Christ not only came as a healer, but he came as a savior. In fact, all of his healing ministry was to set up this idea that he could save us from our sin. And here's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. So if you're write down one thing, I want you to write this down. This is our big idea for today. The big idea is this. Forgiveness is better than healing. Now, healing is, is wonderful, right? And we should ask for healing. And I believe God granted my request to heal my father-in-law. But healing lifts a temporary burden. Forgiveness, on the other hand, lifts an eternal burden. Right? The, the damaging effects of our sicknesses and our illnesses, right? The damaging effects when, when we're not healed can last for several years. But the damaging effects to not have our sins forgiven will last forever. This is the greater work. Even though this is the all-consuming need that we have on our mind most of our time, this is actually the most desperate need that we have right here, is for this deep eternal need to be met. And Jesus Christ makes this very clear in Mark chapter 2 that this is what he came to do, was to forgive us of our sin, not just heal us of our diseases. And the more important work is the work of forgiveness. And I think that idea that forgiveness is better than healing should radically change our prayer life. All right, let me show you this in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Here's what I think we're going to see as we examine this passage, is that Jesus is going to make it very clear that the most pressing need he sees in our lives is not a need for healing, but a need for forgiveness. In fact, that's what Jesus is going to prioritize. What we're also going to see in this passage is that Jesus' religious opponents, most of the Jewish authority at the time, are going to find the most shocking claim that Jesus Christ made was not the claim that he could heal people, but rather the claim that he could forgive sin. They saw that as the greater work. They were used to healers. They know the Old Testament. They know the prophets. They've seen that. But to make the claim that you can forgive sin, that, that right there, was shocking. And that's what set Jesus apart. And that's what I believe we can't erase him from history. is because Jesus did more than heal. He forgave. And that forgiveness is why his impact has never been diminished. So let's just jump in. Mark chapter 2. Let's set the scene. Verse 1. Verse 1 says this. Now Jesus returned to Capernaum. Several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no room, no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching good new, or good God's word to them, Four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. It is slightly humorous that we just talked about how we have a new roof, right? And now we're talking about people digging through a roof, right? Brent would not appreciate what these guys are doing here right? Now, what is going on here? These, these, these friends are not deterred by the density of the crowd. They got to get their friend on the mat to Jesus. Now, what's happening is in Mark chapter 1, and, and Mark, is you're going to familiarize yourself with this gospel, is Mark packs a lot into a small amount. It's the shortest gospel, and it seems like Mark includes so many details, and he goes through them so fast, so, I know we're in Mark chapter two, but Jesus has done a lot of things in Mark chapter one. He is casting out demons, he is healing diseases, he's preaching good news, his popularity is growing, and that's why he's kind of in the situation he's in right now. There's so many people that are coming. Like, we have to see this Jesus. So, the crowd around where Jesus is is just dense. So, getting in close is difficult. But these friends are eager. Right? Just like me, they have this all-consuming thought in their head. We've got to get our friend to this man. Because his most desperate need is to be healed. He's paralyzed. Right? In in first century Palestine, to be paralyzed was much different than it is in 21st century America. Right? They didn't have a, 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 a welfare state that would take care of those who had such ailments. If you were paralyzed in the first century world... The, your only way of survival was begging, right, or or living off the charity of friends and family. So this guy's ailment not only could he not walk, but it was hard for him to survive. So clearly, the most pressing need that this man has is what that he would be healed. And so these friends are eager. We've got to see this need met. We've got to do something for our friend. Their desire, just like my desire, driving up the five was I gotta get into that room. We've got to pray for John. God's got to show up. That's what they're doing. And but they can't get in. They, the crowd is way too dense. Like, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna get in there? So they decide to go on these outside staircases because uh, roofs in the first century in first century Palestine are not like our roofs. Think of them more like a deck. It's kind of a flat area. People would pray there. They would, they would eat meals there. Uh, they would hang out there. And so it was kind of this flat deck with, with branches, lumber, and, and sod. So the idea of digging through, there would be dirt probably. I mean, this was a, a massive demolition job that's happening here. Okay, the homeowner probably doesn't very much appreciate it. But Jesus is actually encouraged by these roof removers Right? So they dig through, and there's got to be mess everywhere. And they lower this man down. Now, right away, we see that Jesus is seeing things differently. We would, we would look at this and think, what a mess. Right? Some of you are in here, like your insurance adjusters, you're like, oh no, their premium is going to go so high. Let's let this happen. Like, what do you call that incident? Is that like an act of God? Like, I don't know. I mean, we're trying to get to God, so I I mean, I don't know how your insurance adjuster would handle that. Right? But Jesus sees a scene, and he sees something totally different. Look what he sees. This is in Mark chapter 2. We're in verse 5. It says, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Jesus sees their faith. Well, this is interesting because this is what Jesus has been talking about. This is what Jesus has been promoting. Yes, he's casting out demons, he's performing these healings, but he's preaching a message, and the message is believe, have faith. We see this, look, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Mark kind of summarizes Jesus' preaching in his early ministry. This is what Mark records. It says, The time promised by God has come at last, this is Jesus speaking, He announced the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. That word believe is the same root word that we see right here of what Jesus sees in these people bringing their friend. So Jesus is thrilled. He is seeing what he has been promoting. This is is his aim in his preaching that people would believe. So Jesus sees their faith. So already we already know Jesus is looking at this conversation or looking at this event much differently than we are. And then Jesus makes this really weird statement. All right look down at verse five again, the very end of verse five. Jesus looks at this paralyzed man and says, "My child, your sins are forgiven." Isn't that weird? Uh, like did Jesus not, not see the pressing need that was before them? This man is paralyzed. He's on a mat. He's in a dire situation, so dire that his friends are moved to destroy a roof and bring him down. Why is this man there? Why are his friends there? It's first on his agenda, I need my sins forgiven. No, it's I would like to move these things. That's what he's looking for. But again, Jesus sees something entirely different than we do. Jesus, Jesus sees something much deeper. Now, we could say, because the Bible does sometimes record, and we see this, that sometimes, that's a key word, sometimes a specific sickness is because of a specific sin. We see that. Now, that's not all the time true. So if you get a cough, it doesn't mean you need to confess your sin. So don't think that. But it's true that there is a connection, that at times we will be sick because we have unconfessed sin. Now, in general, it is true that all sickness can be tied to sin. Sin is the general consequence of our rebellion against God. Like when we sin, we stepped into a world that was now littered with brokenness. If you think of the world, my wife explains this at times to our kids this way, like, if you think of the world as a giant watch with all these gears and all these things, all these dependent parts, when you move one, the whole watch starts to malfunction. So when we walk away from God's design, when we rebel against his rule and his order, it messes up the whole watch. Everything is broken. It doesn't work right. So really, every sickness can be tied to the general rebellion of mankind. We're in a broken world. But Jesus doesn't make this connection specifically. He doesn't tell the man, well, you've done this, therefore you're this way. But he does see a need that maybe we don't see right up front. And that is the need that this man needs to be forgiven. Which is the need that we all have. Like, I don't see anybody today on a mat. Not like this man. So we can't identify with him this way. But we can identify that we all need our sins forgiven. And this is what Jesus prioritizes. He sees that and says, I must meet that need first. Now, notice what Jesus said. He talks to the man and he says to the man, my child, your sins are forgiven. Now, what Jesus did not say, Jesus did not say, I forgive you of your sins. He didn't say that. He said, your sins are forgiven. Now, what Jesus could be meaning here, because this is language that was used by rabbis of the time, is they would speak in this way. If you're a grammarian or you like English literature or something like that, this is a passive verb here, right? Your sins are forgiven. And so the idea is rabbis would use it that way to speak of God without having to use his name. So what Jesus could be saying here is God has forgiven your sins. I'm acknowledging that your sins have been forgiven. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they don't read it this way. They don't see it this way. They don't like what Jesus says here. This is how they're going to take it. They're going to take it like, wait a second, Jesus. Like, you're not just making a pronouncement. You're just not acknowledging a fact that God has forgiven this man's sin. No, you're taking more authority. And you can't do that. That's blasphemous. All right? Look at their response to Jesus. This is how they take Jesus' words. Verse 6. But some of the teachers of the religious law were sitting there and thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. What's so interesting here is this is when we kind of get the first opposition to what Jesus is doing in the gospel of Mark. But Jesus has already been doing a lot of crazy stuff. He's been casting out demons right and left. He's been healing people and we see no disruption from the religious leaders. But the moment they smell like, wait a second, you're teaching something wrong, you can't forgive sins, that's when they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. See, this was their paradigm. Their paradigm, when something miraculous would happen, it wouldn't convince them that that person was necessarily a messenger from God. They had tests in the Old Testament, that if you were a prophet and say you saw an event in the future, you can look all the way in the future and you can say, hey, this is going to happen on this day. Right, somehow the Raiders are going to make the playoffs and win the Super Bowl, right? False prophet, right there. We don't even need to wait for that one, okay? But if they could predict a future event and it happened, that doesn't mean that they're a true prophet. Now, to us, I'd be like, no, yeah, maybe I should listen to this guy. If you, especially that prediction, if you predicted that and it came true, I might listen to you. But they had a couple tests. You not only had to get it right. You not only had to show that the miraculous could be something that you were able to do, but you had to teach right too. So if you called out a future event and it happened, and then you teached according to what they already knew to be true, then you were a true prophet. But if you were able to do a miraculous thing, and then you taught something wrong, nope, false prophet. So it's actually no surprise that maybe they've been comfortable, to some sense, of what Jesus is doing that he's able to perform the miraculous. Surely they're impressed, but they're not convinced that Jesus is from God. And then Jesus appears to make this claim that he can forgive sins, that this pronouncement upon this man, he shouldn't be doing. So here's the question. Is he doing that? Is Jesus making that claim? Because no prophet in the Old Testament ever claimed to have that power to forgive. We have prophets and healers in the Old Testament. We have that. But nobody said they could forgive sins. Nobody claimed that power. So what's Jesus going to do in response? One thing Jesus could do is like, oh, guys, I'm sorry. Let me clear this up. What I actually meant to say was not that I didn't want you to think that I was forgiving a sin. No, 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 no. I was just saying that God had forgiven him. Like like, Daniel, uh, Daniel, like Nathaniel, or Nathan, geez Louise, Paul, like Nathan the prophet. When David, King David committed a sin, he committed adultery. He murdered a man and he lied about it. He, he did this kind of conspiracy. Right? When all of that happened, the prophet came to him and said, hey, you're wrong. And he confessed his sin. And then Nathan the prophet said, your sins are forgiven. That was a pronouncement. God has done something. But Nathan was not forgiving him of his sin. So maybe Jesus, what Jesus could do is say, okay, that's what I'm doing. I'm not forgiving the sin. I'm just I'm just saying that God has done it. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law and he says, You know what? You nailed it. You're right. I am assuming that authority. I am assuming that power. I'm not just speaking on behalf of God. I'm speaking as God. Right? Look at what Jesus says here. This is his response to the scribes. Verse 8. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking what they were thinking. They're not even talking about it. They're thinking it, right? You ever have that moment when you were in class, and I know you were all good students, right? And you never wrote notes about your teacher and drew little horns on them. You never did that. Well, your pastor did, okay? So welcome to sunrise, right? But if you're at that moment where you're writing a note, right? And you're not, you're not sly. You're just kind of a goob. I'm just describing my childhood here for you, right? And you wrote the note, and the teacher's like, Paul, and you're like, what do you have there? And you're just like, Nothing, right? Let me read it. and You're like, oh, no, oh, no, I'm dead, right? Jesus is doing this, but they're, they're not even writing it down. He captured their thought. Now, I don't, even know, I don't know how this worked, but that sinking feeling that I felt that I, when I got caught, when I was passing notes, I feel like that's what they're, what's happening to them right now. Jesus can see what they're thinking. So maybe he's teaching. He peers through the window, sees them outside, and says, hey, let's talk about that thought right there. Oh. Look what Jesus says to them. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Again, it's not a public thought. He's saying, I'm seeing exactly what you're saying. It is. Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? Okay. At first glance, this seems like a really silly question to me. Like, what is easier, to say you're forgiven or you're healed? I'm just think for a moment, how many times have you said to somebody, I forgive you, versus how many times you've said, I heal you? I've never done that one. I've never done Like, I heal you. I've never, that's never happened. I forgive you, that's happened, okay? That's happened before. So at first, it sounds like, what's the big deal about this authority to forgive? Clearly, the easier work is to forgive, and the harder work is to heal. But not according to Jesus. And really not according to the Scriptures. And I think the teachers of the law know that. See, the reason we think the power to forgive is easier, or the task of forgiving is easier, is because we often think of our sin only on a horizontal basis. Like, when I make fun of your NFL team in the service, I could say, I'm sorry. And you would say, any Raiders fans? Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Right? So then I'm forgiven. That was easy, right? They're like, I don't know. Actually, that was kind of hard. But to to make the declaration that I've healed you of, of some ailment, well, that's just different. See, but the scriptures don't portray sin like that are only like that. It's true that sin has this horizontal dimension, but there's a vertical dimension to our sin, and that is actually the weightier matter. That yes, if I've sinned against a brother or a sister, yes, I need to go to them and and and, and confess, and they forgive, and if, if they've done anything, then I forgive them. And so that horizontal dynamic, yes, but releasing me of the burden, of the treasonous act of my sin To my creator is not something that anybody can lift. That's a burden not anybody can lift. Look at this dynamic. In Psalms 51, David, when he's confessing his sin, he has just killed a man, committed adultery with that man's wife. He's tried to cover it up. Has, Has David committed any sin on a horizontal plane? Absolutely. He's broken three of the Ten Commandments. But when he confesses his sin, look at how he talks about it. Look at where the point of emphasis is, right? This is Psalms 51.4. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. If you're Uriah's family, that only has got to bug you a little bit. Like you killed our father and you slept with our mother? No, no. Yeah, okay, maybe you sinned against God, but you sinned against us. What is David communicating to us here as he confesses his sin to God? There is a vertical dynamic to our sin that we don't see. That He is the rule giver, and His rules are a display of His character and of His goodness. And when we go against that, it's a treasonous act to His character. It's rebellion first and foremost of His rule and His reign. It's a rejection of His of His glory. It's almost like everything in creation should be spiraling around the glory of God, everything in orbit around Him, showing the beauty and the greatness and the goodness of who He is. And sin is like pushing ourselves out of orbit, like working against the entire momentum of the cosmos. That's what sin is. It is cosmic rebellion it is moving away from where the entire creation should be moving toward under the reign of God its creator and that's what we miss at times with our sin that to forgive somebody yes handles it this way but to say they're fully forgiven to give them hope that God is now right with him nobody can do that it is so much easier to perform a miraculous healing, than it is to actually to say you are forgiven. Think about it this way: What cost Jesus Christ more? Our healings or our forgiveness? I mean, Christ is God in the flesh; he could heal. We saw healings in the Old Testament. We saw prophets given power to heal. What did it cost Christ? To seal and guarantee your forgiveness. It cost him his death. That was the high price of your forgiveness with his, was his death and resurrection. That is the greater work. And what Jesus says right after this is, in fact, I'm going to do this lesser work, this work of healing, to prove to you that I could do the greater work. That this healing is just a setup so you would believe that I have the power and the authority to forgive sin. Look at how Jesus closes off our passage. Mark chapter 2. We're going to finish out verse 9. I'll read it again. Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I'm going to do this work because the more important work is what I want to convince you of. I'm going to heal this man so you'll know that I have the power and the authority to forgive. This title, Son of Man, is Jesus' self-designation. It's his favorite term for himself. It's actually a title in one of Daniel's visions hundreds of years before Jesus in Daniel chapter 7, where it speaks of this figure who comes in and is given authority and power to have an eternal kingdom. And Jesus is saying, I am that figure. God has given me authority and power to have an eternal kingdom. And one of those powers that I've been given is to forgive sin. I'm going to show you that by healing this man. All right, let's see what happens. Verse 10, then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. The man jumped up, he grabbed his mat, and he walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. Wow. Healers, they know healers. They've seen them. They've been recorded for them. What was most oppressive was not that Jesus could heal. That's impressive. It's why he did those things. It was to prove what? That he could forgive. He could forgive. Who could do that? Who could lift that eternal burden from our shoulders? The Savior who took that burden on the cross. He could forgive. Forgiveness is better than healing. Let me tell you, this should change the way we pray. Because you know how I pray? I pray for healing a lot more than I pray for forgiveness. When I'm praying for other people, What am am I most often praying for? I'm praying that they would be healed of a disease or that a relationship would be mended. I have all of these physical uh, needs and relational needs in my mind. God, I want you to heal them. And those are good. We should bring those things to God. Absolutely. God tells us to bring those needs to Him. But what is the more pressing need? That we would be forgiven and that those that we are praying for would be forgiven. Uh, there was a, a, a brother in our church, and we were talking like two weeks ago, and he was, he was telling me about this conversation he was having with a friend at work. And what I love about this brother is that he is so vocal at work. I mean, he is very much uh, a conversationalist at work, and he always talks about his faith. And I told him, I texted him just a couple days ago. I said, man, I'm so encouraged that you continually talk about your faith. And he's like, yeah, sometimes it's awkward, but I love it. Right, and he's a good, hard worker, so people love to work with him. So it's really great. I mean, the guy is just a wonderful witness of God. And so he has this friend at work who has this ailment. And it's, it's pretty severe. The diagnosis is not good. And so we're hanging out. He's at my house. And we're just hanging out in the back. And he's like, man, you know what? I'm really praying for him. I'm not praying that God would heal him. I'm praying that he would experience the forgiveness of God. Okay, and i got to be honest, right? Like, I know I'm a pastor, right? I've read this book a lot of, you know. My first gut response was like, dude, that's rude, now, I didn't say that. Like, I have learned not to always say the words that are in your head, right? I've learned that. Now, if I was with Jesus at that point, he'd be like, ah, Paul, let's talk about that thought. Like, Darn it, <laughs> right? But I did. My first response was like, no, 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 no. Okay, pray for healing, and then we'll get to this whole forgiveness thing. And then I read this passage, and I was like, wow, Paul, that's, you're off. You're not seeing the situation like Jesus saw it, like Jesus sees it. Sure, Jesus is broken hearted and grieved that this man is paralyzed. This is going to affect him for several years of his life. It caused cause a, a discomfort for years. But Jesus sees his soul and sees how that's broken, how that's wounded, and how that needs healing, and how that is in jeopardy of eternal discomfort. That's what Jesus sees. And Jesus says, I, I'll take care of this little thing here. Because you need to see there's a bigger need here. Man, I was so convicted of, I don't pray right. I need to pray for that bigger need. That our sins would be forgiven. That their sin would be forgiven. And he's in, even as a Christian, what do I pray for? For myself. I'll be honest, my prayer list for myself is often for for healing and that God would show up and make things physically more comfortable. But do I pray for my sin to be forgiven? Do I take my intimacy with God as the highest priority? Because every time I sin, it doesn't break my relationship with God, but it distances me from God. And do I really hunger and want more than anything, more than my own healing? Do I really want intimacy with God? And if that was my priority, then the first thing I would do is confess my sin. Right. Look at how Jesus, uh, Jesus' brother James, when he's writing in James chapter five, look at how James connects these two ideas together. This is James chapter five. I believe it's in verse sixteen. It says, "Confess your sins to each other." So this is James, the brother of Jesus, talking to the church. So he's telling the church, what should you do? You should confess. He's not talking about it in a moment. Like oftentimes in Christianity, we think of our confession when we say to ourselves, I need forgiveness, right? And and here are my sin. I need Jesus to save me. That's like a moment and then it's over. But that's not. That's the start of a journey of confession. The scriptures talk about having constant confession, continual confession, James says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. You see that here? Our sicknesses should ask us or should cause us to ask the question, do I have any unconfessed sin in my life? Now again, your sickness may not be caused by a specific unconfessed sin, but it should remind you of the deeper need that you have in your life. And that's a need to always be intimate with the Lord, to be near to the Lord. And sin gets in the way of that. Look at how Jesus showed us to pray. This is Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. And the prayer he's teaching them is a prayer that he wants them to do every day. Let me show you how we see this. This is Matthew chapter 6. He said, give us today the food we need. Look at the context there. Give us today. Right? I have a family of six. So we have to go to Costco Every eight hours to load up on food, right? No, we don't go every, that's an exaggeration, but it feels like that, right? We go in, we spend $3,000 or whatever it is, right? I gotta give blood plasma because I don't have enough money, right? So we've gotta load up the family for food. But notice what Jesus is saying. What increments does he want you to think of? Give us today, not this week, this quarter, this decade. What is he saying? Every day, pray for today. This is a daily prayer that he wants us to do. Give us today the food we need. And then right after that, in the same sentence of this daily prayer, what does he instruct us to pray about? And forgive us our sins. 100%. I fall short of this big time. Big time. Do I confess My sin to God every day? No. What's my greatest need though? My greatest need is forgiveness. My greatest hunger should be my intimacy with God. And sin gets in the way of that. Sickness won't necessarily get in the way of that. It could. But my sin gets in the way of that. So if I truly hungered for a relationship with the Lord, like Jesus is instructing me to hunger for, then I would confess my sin every day. We're, we're about to participate, just here in a moment, in communion. It's a symbol of the reminder of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ when he met our greatest need, the need for forgiveness. And as we do that, we're going to sing a song before we get to the table. I want you to treat this time as a very somber time. Do you have any unconfessed sin in your heart? Any unconfessed sin? Maybe sin that you've handled horizontally, right? You've already asked the person for forgiveness, right? And they've forgiven you. But have you dealt with it this way, vertically? Are there any hidden sins in your heart that are disrupting your fellowship with God? Get those out. Let this be a time of just confession, a time of reflection, and even ask the Lord to bring out those sins. That you may have not confessed yet. And then you can participate in communion. Forgiveness is so much better than healing. Now maybe you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. You just, you're curious about Christ. You're, you're giving church a shot. There's a really important lesson I think you could take away from this passage. And that's this. Jesus will not always give you what you want. But he will always give you what you need. That man came... To Jesus wanting to be healed I came to Jesus in prayer and asked for my father-in-law John to be healed and Jesus said yes to those but he doesn't always say yes there will be times that you will beg him to heal you and a loved one and he'll say no and I know that's disappointing but let me tell you why it's not devastating it's not devastating because there is a prayer that Jesus will always say yes to And that is the prayer that says, forgive me. Forgive me. Cover my guilt. Cover my shame. Your death and resurrection are the only means for me to be right. Give me that forgiveness. Jesus always says yes to that. And that is your greatest need. And my prayer for you today, that as we take a time to reflect before we participate in communion, is that you would confess your sin to God. You would ask God to forgive you in his son, Jesus Christ. And you'd start to follow him today. He will say yes to your prayer for forgiveness. And praise God that he does. Because that is your greatest need. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray. I pray right now that you would convict us. That you'd bring up the sin that is in us. Search our heart, oh God. Search it. Find the sins. The sins that, that we're not even mindful of. How do I talk to my kids? How, how do I talk to my wife? How do I lead at work? Whatever it is, Father, find, find those things. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bring to our minds right up front... Right up front in our minds. It's very clear in our minds. These are the sins that you have that you need to confess before the Lord. They need to be cleansed and removed from your mind. Father, oh, all we want is intimacy with you. To be near you. To be with you. We want to know communion with you. And we don't want that to be disrupted. We don't want that to be damaged. So we, we stand before you now. We, we're in this room or we're online. We're saying in our heart, please, Holy Spirit, find the things that disrupt our fellowship with you. That hinder our communion with you. Because there is nothing we want more than an intimate relationship with you. So Father, I pray that you just take over this time right now. Christ, we thank you. We thank you that you died and rose again. We thank you that you met our need. Oh, how wonderful it is. Father, for those that are in this room and they've never committed to following you. But they're at that moment right now of, I I think this is the step I want to take. Father, I pray you just speak to them right now. Just between you and them in the silence of their own heart, Father, would you just speak to them? Would you reassure them and say, I will forgive you if you'll come and confess. If you confess your sin, if you believe in my son, I'll meet you right there and I'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Oh, Father. I pray those conversations are happening right now. Be with us as we reflect as we praise you, and as we take communion. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.